this morning, it's Muslims in your face. That's the title of my talk this morning. Muhammad was the founder of Islam, born in 570 AD. While Muhammad was the founder, the roots of Islam go back 30 centuries, going all the way back to Genesis 16, where we meet Ishmael. In Genesis 16, the Word of God says, Ishmael would be a wild man, his hand would be against every man, and every man's hand would be against him. God said that Ishmael and his descendants would be filled with conflict. Muhammad was born of the tribe of Karash. They were the most influential tribe because they controlled the city of Mecca. Mecca was important economically because it was a resting place for the traveling caravans. It was important religiously because it housed the Kaaba. The Kaaba is a black cube, a large cube that housed 360 Arabian deities. Clearly the pre-Islamic religion of Arabia was a polytheistic or pantheon of gods, one for each day according to the lunar calendar. And one of these 360 deities, his name was Allah. Allah was the moon god. That is why you see the crescent moon above so many mosques and on the Islamic flag. And I suspect that most Muslims would not be able to tell you why those crescent moons are on those mosques. But hear it again, Allah was the God of the moon. In 610 AD, at age 40, Muhammad began to meditate in a cave and began to, began to receive revelations from an angel of light. He originally believed that he was possessed by a jinn, which is the Arabic word for demon. When, uh, when he would receive these revelations, he would foam at the mouth. He would throw himself down violently. He would contort his face. His face would turn red. He would perspire profusely. He would hear a loud ringing in his ear. He thought he was going insane. And his dear wife encouraged him to go back for more. As a result of these revelations, Muhammad eliminated the 359 other deities in the Kaaba and said that his revelation revealed that God was monotheistic. And that was the beginning of Islam. Now here's something that will blow most Muslims' minds. When they hear this, it will shock them. Because most of them have never heard this before. As a result of the revelations that Muhammad received in the cave, Muhammad eliminated the other 359 deities, including Allah's daughters, which are referred to in the Quran 
in Surah 53.19. In the Quran, it says that Allah has three daughters and they are named right in the Quran. The reason that's a little bit unusual is because according to Muslim theology, God cannot beget a son. If God cannot have a son, he surely cannot have three daughters. This is the genesis of Islam. The doctrine of Allah and the doctrine of monotheism was very unpopular because the leaders of the Koresh tribe benefited financially because Mecca was a place that the pilgrims would come through and Mecca was an oasis. It was a resting place for traveling caravans. So they benefited economically from all this trade. Muhammad began to accrue a significant following. And after several successful sieges and military victories against Mecca, and after making treaties with his own tribe, which he shortly thereafter broke, Muhammad and his army took control of Mecca in 630 AD. Within a year of Muhammad's submission to Allah, he was able to unify the tribes of the Arabian Peninsula under the religion of Islam. One of the revelations that Muhammad received while he was in the cave was that it was okay to raid caravans and to kill Jews. You have to understand that Muhammad originally, because of his religious zeal, Muhammad went to the Jews and tried to convince them that he was a prophet. But the Jews rejected him and his claim to be a prophet. So Muhammad went to the Christians and tried to convince the Christians that he was an apostle. But the Christians rejected his claim to be an apostle. And that was the foundation, that was the beginning of Muhammad's hatred for Jews and Christians. Not surprisingly, shortly thereafter, he received a revelation from his angel of light named Gabriel that it was okay to raid caravans and to kill Jews. He raided more than 60 caravans and at one point he rounded up over 800 Jewish men and slit their throats and or beheaded them publicly. That is when Islam became known as the religion of the sword. Muhammad himself had 10 wives. He married one of his wives when she was six years old. He consummated the marriage when she was nine years old and he was 51 years old at the time. And Muhammad died on June 8th, 632 AD. That is the history, that is the genesis that is the beginning of Islam and Muhammad. It began violent. It's a bloody religion. Islam is not benign. It has never been benign. It never will be benign. Its very foundation is violence and bloodshed. Which brings us to Islam today. According to the United States State Department Office of Counterterrorism, all terrorism worldwide today is carried out not by radical but by faithful Muslims. Yasser Arafat committed his first murder when he was 20 years old. He was a member of the brotherhood that assassinated Anwar Sadat 
and numerous tourists in Egypt and Coptic Christians. Yasser Arafat to this day holds a number of world records for terrorism. He's responsible for the largest single hijacking of an aircraft in a single day. He holds the world record for the number of victims killed by a single booby trap, 102. He holds the world record for the largest number of casualties in a single raid, 38 shot to death and 70 wounded. He holds the record for the largest number of people shot to death in an airport, 31. He's responsible for at least 40 civilian aircraft, five passenger ships, and the bombing of 30 embassies and diplomatic missions being taken over. He was the mastermind behind the kidnapping and the execution of the Israeli wrestlers at the Munich Olympics. He's responsible for the 1974 massacre uh, at the Malat School where 22 children and five adults were shot to death. He trained hundreds of murderers to commit thousands of murders. And how confused are we in this world? He was given the Nobel Peace Prize. Islam is fueled by religious hatred. 123 times in the Quran, it says that the faithful Muslims are to murder infidels, dismember or crucify them wherever you find them. I quote from the Quran, Take not the Jews and Christians as friends, Slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Besiege them and prepare for them an ambush. And for this, they are promised paradise. The only way that you can be guaranteed as a Muslim to be saved in the afterlife is to murder an infidel. When King Farak was in power, he said, and I quote, the Jews in Palestine must be exterminated. There can be no option for those of us who revere the name of Allah. There can only be jihad. The king of Libya said, The Zionist conquest of Zion is an affront to all Muslims. There can be no compromise until every Jew is dead and gone. The president of Iran said, Every problem in our region can be traced to the single dilemma to the occupation of the House of Islam by Jewish infidels. Another Palestinian leader said, Allah has bestowed upon us the rare privilege of finishing what Hitler only began. Let there be jihad. Murder the Jews. Murder them all. Jihad. One of the foundational beliefs of Islam Holy war literally means self-struggle. And so does Mein Kampf. Adolf Hitler's book meant exactly the same thing, my struggle. And what is it that they're struggling against? The Jew. Just as Hitler convinced Germany that all of its problems were because of the Jews, in the 1930s, Hitler told the people that a war would result in the extermination of the Jews. This was the final solution, the extermination and the annihilation of every last Jewish person on earth. Former PLO terrorist Walid Shobat, I quote, 
Secular dogma like Nazism is less dangerous than Islamic fascism. It is less dangerous because Islamic fascism has a religious twist to it. It says, God Almighty ordered you to do this, not the Fuhrer. Islam is the official religion as we speak. In 55 countries of the world, so potentially, he said, you could have a success rate of 55 Nazi Germanys. I think that is a tremendous understatement because the Islamic world is about to become nuclear powered. Alphonse Heck, Nazi youth, now historians. It is absolutely correct to say that if you can't learn from the events of Nazi Germany, you will not be able to grasp the true intent of the danger of the radical Muslim world today. You are simply hiding. Friends, believe me, when Muslims talk about being a peaceful religion, what they mean by that is there will be peace in our world when Islam rules the world. According to recent surveys, 75% of Muslims, violent or nonviolent, 75% of them approve of Osama bin Laden. 25%, and please remember, there's 1.2 billion Muslims on this planet. Six billion people, that means one out of every six people in this world is Muslim. And 25% of those people are absolutely committed to the violent overthrow of every other religion, including the violent overthrow of the United States if necessary. They refer to Israel as the little Satan, and they refer to the United States as the big Satan. And one of, their, one of their catchphrases is, first the Saturday people, then the Sunday people. So do the math on this. If 25% of a billion Muslims are violent people who think nothing of killing someone for the glory of Allah, that's 250 million people worldwide who are dedicated to taking over the world through violence. 250 million people, that's almost enough. That almost equates the population of the United States of America. Unfortunately, they're scattered all over the world. They're not in one place. What I'd like to talk to you about now is doctrine. We talked about Muhammad. We talked a little about Islam. I'd like you to consider Islamic doctrine compared to the Bible. Jesus prophesied that the day would come when religious zealots would make murdering Christians and Jews their doctrine. I would refer you to John chapter 16, verse 2. This is Jesus Christ speaking. He said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. Jesus said the day would come when he who kills you, and to whom is he speaking? He was speaking to Jewish Christians. The day would come when those who think they murder you do God a service. This day, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing.
600 years after Christ, the Quran said, the punishment for those who wage war against Allah and his apostle, that they should be murdered or crucified, or their hands and their feet should be cut off on opposite sides, or they should be imprisoned. Slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Take them captives and besiege them, and lie in wait for them in every ambush. O oh, you who believe, do not take the Jews and the Christians for friends, for they are friends of each other. And whoever among you take them for a friend, then surely he is one of them. To become a friend of a Jew or a Christian is to side with them, to become one of them, to become an infidel, to wage war against Allah and his apostle, and he is worthy of death or dismemberment. They hate us. And they believe it is their sacred duty to murder you if you refuse to say the words, I believe that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. Islam says that God cannot beget. To say that God has a son is blasphemy. John 3.16 says God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Islam denies the deity of Christ. It says that Jesus was an apostle and an apostle only. And it says that the Trinity is a blasphemous doctrine and that we who join God, other gods to God, we are infidels worthy of death. John 8:24 Jesus Christ incarnate love said Therefore I say to you you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am you will die in your sin It's a clear reference to Exodus 3 when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush and Moses said, who should I say sent me? They're not going to believe me. What is your name? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am hath sent you. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. The Pharisees knew exactly what he meant by that. And they picked up stones to stone him, for he, being a man, claimed to be God. Islam says that salvation is not by blood atonement, but by human effort. If your good works outweigh your bad works, maybe Allah will have mercy on you. This lesson goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain brought the work of his own hands, and Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Cain brought something from his garden, something that he produced by the sweat of his own brow, and his sacrifice was rejected. God has been trying to teach us this for thousands of years. In Hebrews, quoting Leviticus, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Islam says precisely the opposite. There is no blood atonement in Jesus Christ. You're saved by your good works. The sacrificial system that 
God instituted through Moses and Aaron went on for 1,500 years to provide us with an historical and a theological context. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They had 1,500 years of animal sacrifices so that when Jesus came on the scene, this would all make sense. 600 years later, says Mohammed, says salvation is not by that at all. Mohammed received his revelations from an angel of light. 600 years before that, we were told that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. In Galatians 1.8, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of the living God, said, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, that man is damned. Let him be accursed. Islam says Jesus is not the Son of God. 1 John 2.22 Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Mashiach, the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Make no mistake about it, who we're, what, what the spirit is that drives this thing. It's the Antichrist. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written you concerning those who try to deceive you. Islam rejects every major tenet of the Christian faith. Islam has reversed each one of the Ten Commandments. I found the direct antithesis of each one of the Ten Commandments, either in the Quran or in the Hadith, which are supposedly the sayings of Muhammad, and in the Islamic world, the Hadith have equal authority with the Quran. Commandment number one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The English word Lord is Yahweh in Hebrew. It literally means the eternal self-existent one. In Exodus 3.15, speaking of the name YHWH, Yahweh we say, we don't know the actual pronunciation, the four, the four consonants, there's no vowels, it's yud heh vav in Hebrew. The tetragrammaton, it's called by theologians, God's most holy and proper name. Of that name, in Exodus 3.15, God says, This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. More than 2,000 years after God personally revealed his name to Moses. Muhammad is quoted in the Hadith as saying, quote, I have been commanded that I should fight these people till they bear witness there is no God but Allah. 
When they do this, their blood and their property shall be safe with me, except as Islam requires. Don't even try to figure that out. Much of the Quran is completely incoherent. Commandment number two, you're not, you're not to worship any created thing. The greatest act of worship in Islam is the required once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to Mecca. The high point of the ceremony is at the religious shrine known as the Kaaba. The Muslims must run around the building counterclockwise seven times and each time pause to kiss a black rock that supposedly fell from heaven. Kissing a black rock in a religious ceremony disobeys commandment number two, not to worship any created thing. Commandment number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Will Durant in his classic, The Story of Civilization writes, quote, within the Kaaba, in pre-Muslim days were several idols representing gods. One was called Allah. Three others were Allah's daughters, Al-Uzayat, Al-Lat, and Al-Manat. We may judge the antiquity of this Arab pantheon from the mention of Aliat by Herodias, 5th century BC Greek historian, as a major Arabian deity. The Quraysh, Muhammad's tribe, paved the way for monotheism by worshiping Allah as the chief god. Archaeological evidence uncovered in Arabia is overwhelming in demonstrating that the, that the dominant pre-Islamic religion was the worship of the moon god Allah. Muhammad simply eliminated the other 359 deities, including Allah's daughters, referred to in Surah 5913. That's why you see the crescent moon on the Islamic flag and above Islamic temples. The God of the Bible is not the God of the moon. He's the creator of the moon. To refer to a pagan deity as God is to disobey commandments 1, 2, and 3. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Originally on uh, Saturday, it was changed to Sunday to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you recall, God said to the apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gave them that authority to change that day to Sunday. We keep the Sabbath on Sunday. Muslims worship on Friday. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. The Quran says in Surah 438, men are superior to women and gives men permission to, quote, remove them unto their beds and beat them, close quote. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7, that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, that your prayers might not be hindered. In Ephesians 5, 28, the Bible says husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. Following the Quran regarding the physical abuse of women disobeys commandment number five because one of the implications in commandment number five is that women are of equal value in the sight of God with men. Well, you wouldn't want to be a Muslim woman, I promise you, if you're a woman. 
Commandment number six, thou shalt not murder. I've already told you that there are 123 verses in the Quran that give Muslims Allah's blessing to murder, crucify, or dismember infidels. 1 Corinthians 6.9, murderers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now granted, three of the greatest men in the Bible were murderers, Moses, King David, and the Apostle Paul, but they were repentant. When the Bible says murderers shall not enter the kingdom of God, he's speaking of unrepentant murderers. The, uh, the, the Quran would have you, uh, would teach you that you don't have to repent of killing an infidel, that you've done God a favor. This one ought to blow your mind. Commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. But the Quran endorses it. Shura 4.2, I quote, Of other women who seem good in your eyes, marry two or three or four. And if ye still fear that ye shall not act equitably, then one only, or the slaves you have acquired. Nature itself teaches us that the doctrine of polygamy cannot be divinely inspired since the ratio of men to women has always been 50-50. If there were four or more women to every man in this world, then this doctrine might not be so obviously false. In Matthew 19.5, Jesus said, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wives. <laughs> no. It says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, singular, and the two shall become one. The Quran goes on to say that the owner of any female slave can sell her into prostitution or rape her anytime he wants to and Allah will forgive him. Don't believe it? Read it yourself in Shura 24:33. The last female Muslim I shared this with went completely berserk and a week later stopped attending his mosque and is now reading the Bible. Shura 24.33 Force not your female slave into sin in order that you may enrich yourselves in this world if they wish to preserve their modesty. Yet if any of you do compel them Allah will forgive you. <laughs> What? You ever heard the you ever heard the word the, the term double speak? Well, don't do this, but if you do, God'll forgive you. What part of nature is is he going to be attracted toward? The part that God'll forgive you, you're not supposed to do it. I shared with a Muslim woman one time and I said if I could show you in the Quran where it says that your husband can rape you or sell you into prostitution anytime he wants to, and Allah will forgive you. Would that bother you? She said, well, yes it would, but it doesn't say that. I said, it actually does. She said, no, it doesn't. I said, it does. She said, it does not. I just happen to have a Quran with me. And I turned, I just happened to know what page to turn to. And I turned it around and I said, would you mind reading this? Her husband was right there. He wasn't a Muslim. She reads it and she starts cursing me in a McDonald's at noon. Well, I mean, so everybody in the room could hear it. And she walks out of the room slamming and waving her arms, screaming obscenities at me. I look at the husband, he looks at me and says, he says, give me a minute. <laughs> okay so a couple minutes later they come back and she's 
She's practically foaming at the mouth. And I said, if I could show you in the Quran where it says, she says, just a minute. She said, I'm too angry to talk to you right now. But if there's something that you want to email to me, you go ahead. Here's my email address. I'll read it. So I wrote down the Ten Commandments on one side of the page. And I wrote down the Ten Anti-Commandments from the Islamic teaching. And the following week I saw her husband. And he said, I don't know what you, <laughs> I don't know what you said there. But she's not going to the mosque anymore. Commandment number eight is thou shalt not steal. Shura 24:29 in the Quran says, and I quote, There shall be no harm in your entering houses and where, where nobody's home for the supply of your needs. In other words, as long as nobody's there, go in and take whatever you want. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Bible says, Thieves shall not enter the kingdom of God. There's a lot more on this, but I, I'm running out of time here, so you can take one of these. I brought one for everybody. You can take one of these home and read it. My point is that Islam rejects every major tenet of the Christian faith. They have reversed each one of the Ten Commandments. In 1 Timothy 4.1, the Word of God says, Now the Spirit expressly states that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Islam teaches that salvation is in the name of Muhammad, not in Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, the Bible says, There is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And the whole context of that chapter is Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. We come to one of my favorite people, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran. In November 2005 speech in Tehran, Ahmadinejad said that the main mission of his government was, quote, to pave the way for the glorious reappearing of the Imam Mahdi. He believes that his call in life is to act as the forerunner for the, uh, the twelfth direct descendant of Muhammad, who is a perfect human being who is going to return. This is the Islamic version of the return of the Christian Messiah. Only this man's going to come and bring peace. But I told you what they mean by peace is not what we mean by peace. And he has literally told the world that this Iman will appear in less than two years. And his job uh, in order to expedite that process is to bring chaos and violence and war to this world. 3,000 years ago in Psalm 83, beginning in verse 3, this is what the Word of God says. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against you. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. Ahmadinejad has promised the world that when he gets his atomic weapon, his first official act will be to annihilate the Jews. According to the Bible, God promised that the Holy Land would be given to one of Abraham's descendants through his son Isaac. More than 2,000 years later, Muhammad claimed that Ishmael, not Isaac, was the rightful heir, and therefore the land belongs to the Arabs. That is why faithful Muslims are so determined to destroy Israel and take the land. Because if Israel prevails or even exists, then Muslims will be forced to admit that Allah is not the true God and Muhammad is not a prophet and is, Muslims cannot lose face. So they're stuck in a dead-end job trying to, prove something, trying to prove a lie is true. God's end-time plan for the nations is to show himself 
through the salvation and the deliverance of Israel. God's end time plan to prove once and for all to the nations that he is the Lord is to deliver Israel. In Zechariah 12, it says all nations will come against Israel. In Zechariah 14, all the nations will battle against Jerusalem. And the eternal self-existent one will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. In Joel chapter 3, he says, I will gather all the nations and enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they divided up my land. God's plan for salvation is intimately tied to the Israel and to the Jew. That the spirit that drives this Islamic thing was originally introduced to us in Daniel chapter 10. I'm not trying to be sensational. This is just my own personal opinion. But if you recall, Daniel got on his knees and cried out to God for assistance. And 21 days later, an angel shows up and says, From the moment you prayed, your prayers were heard. But he says that I was withstood for 21 days by the prince of Persia. Oh, isn't that interesting? I think the prince of Persia is either Satan himself or surely one of his chief demonic forces. I tend to think the prince of Persia is Satan himself. The same prince of Persia is the driving force behind Islam. It's a demonic spirit. That's my point. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. Edmund Burke. We all know what happened during World War II. When Hitler came to power, I believe that we are repeating what happened in Germany in many, many, many ways because the church in Germany, by and large, sat by and let Hitler do what he did. They were scared to death. With the exception of a handful of people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes to mind, Corey Ten Boom. There were some real heroes that stood up against Adolf Hitler and they stood for the truth. Some of them died for it, some of them survived. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 37, Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. What's wrong with eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? Absolutely nothing. I believe what he's referring to in this passage is that and they were so consumed with their worldly affairs that they failed to discern the times. And I believe that in large part, we, the Church of Jesus Christ, are failing to discern the times and the seasons that are right before our very eyes. The first thing you can do is pray. In Ezekiel 22... He says, God says, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. 
Therefore I poured out my indignation upon them. I consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Where were those who were interceding for the nation? He couldn't find anybody. I believe we can prepare spiritually. According to J. Hampton Keithley III, the great purpose of the prophetic word as designed by God is the pursuit of holiness by his people. This is everywhere evident in one prophetic passage after another. Check all the passages dealing with the return of the Lord and you will find that almost without exception, our Lord's return is used as a basis for an exhortation to godliness. When you get up off your knees... I think we need to hide ourselves under the wings of the shadow of the Almighty One and seek holiness with all of our hearts. I also think that we need to support people who are involved in the front lines of this fight. 